say about how we can serve and connect with the mission that God has given us to share in sovereign grace at the end of this message, but open up with me to Acts chapter 1. Keith, didn't we just spend like two and a half years in Acts and now we're going back to Acts chapter 1? <laughs> well, I never got to put a punctuation mark on the end of our sentence for Acts, and so this is what I'm attempting to do today which I just loved this study. It was wonderfully meaningful, informative, and inspiring. So I want to conclude that today by taking us back to how it started, and then we'll fast forward to 30 years later at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. Let's just read how it got started here in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, Lord, as we open again this word, we call to mind our need for your word. Lord, our minds today came in here sifting through a thousand thoughts. Image after image is located there. Philosophies and concepts are scattered in our minds. But Lord, we need our minds renewed this morning. We need to look upon that which is pure and holy and necessary in our souls. So open our hearts and our minds to your word, Lord. Teach us and help us to benefit in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to highlight something here that here is the beginning of the book of Acts. This is the beginning of the mission, right? The Great Commission begins here. Well, it doesn't begin here, but this is where it begins to take its steps into the realities of this world. And I want to point out that there are three ingredients here in this little passage that we just read that make up the mission that the church lives. The first ingredient, a non-negotiable, if you don't have this ingredient, you might be doing some nice things for people, but you're not saving them for eternity. The first ingredient is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He highlights the fact that Jesus has come, he has fulfilled the ministry, he has taught about himself. He has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies relating to who he was. He has accomplished the suffering that was required before God to alleviate the wrath that we all faced. He has arisen victorious, and he now sits at the right hand of God. All right, this is the person and work of Christ, ingredient number one. Ingredient number two, interestingly, is the people who were told to wait in Jerusalem, you, if you were gathered in that moment, ingredient number two, right, if you're a chef here, this is, this is your ingredients. We're putting together a recipe here for the Great Commission. You wait in Jerusalem. Don't, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Don't try and run off with all your enthusiasm that you've got some ideas in your head about what you're going to do. You wait right here 
But then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world, he's about to say a couple of verses later. So you're an ingredient in God's purpose. And then the third ingredient here is the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait in Jerusalem for this unique enablement that's going to come into your life when the Holy Spirit takes up his place inside of you and you are filled with the Spirit. So there, there's our three ingredients and this little gathering of people are told to take up their place of waiting in Jerusalem, right? Now we fast forward some 30 years have gone by to Acts chapter 28. The apostle Paul has traveled all the way around the globe to Rome. Do I have a slide on that, Eric? Did I have a slide I got up here? All right, this is where we are. You can see over here in Jerusalem where we started and then up around the Mediterranean Sea, you see various dates of when Christianity spread into these locations. And we get to about 60, roughly about 60 AD, and we're all the way to Rome. And so we're about 2,000 miles by land away from this little group that started in Jerusalem. And Paul shows up in Rome in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he's explaining, how did I get all the way here? to Rome from way over in Jerusalem, and why am I appearing before you guys today? And their response, let me just pick up on that, because it says something about what Christianity has been doing for these last 30 years. Verse 21, and they said to him, well, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for, with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Everywhere. Paul, you know, we haven't got anything official on you, uh, but man, we're sure glad you're here. And we want to hear what on earth do you have to say? Because everywhere what you are sharing is obviously known and spoken against. Now, I don't mean that, I don't think that word literally isn't everywhere, everywhere. But I think it's a common, oh, wow, well, you know, whatever you represent, it has traveled all over the place. And we hear about it all the time. And this, is, this is supernatural. This is miraculous that in a 30-year period of time, the story about an individual, I mean, this, remember, this is first century. This is not information age. You didn't post this in a blog. It didn't go viral. It had to be personally carried from one location to another. So 30 years of carrying the gospel from one location to another. Now you and I, the gospel, it's a big term. It's been around, it's impacted the whole world. What was it back here? It was the story of some Christos who didn't have much of a personal background. He, he wasn't some royalty. He wasn't a high-ranking official amongst religious people. He went around teaching, and there were some miracles that we've heard of, and there was a big claim that he never really died in the end, but, you know, I, I don't even know. I might have been getting all that straight, and people are hearing this story, and it goes from place to place to place amongst a setting where the Jews of that day, they would not have wanted to make room for this, and they didn't. Remember, as we studied through Acts, the people who stoned the messengers the most 
were the Jews. It wasn't the Gentiles. It was the Jews. The religious people hated this message. The Greeks, the Romans with their pantheon and their plurality of idols in their lives, they had no room for this. It didn't match their theology in any way. Their theology was a pluralistic idea that God existed in a variety of personalities and forms. And that touched all kinds of life. So there were dozens and dozens of gods in everybody's life. And there was no exclusivity. If you needed something that that God specialized in, you just added him to your ideas about God. And then along comes this message of exclusivity, of no other way but this way, of one God. How did this thing ever get any traction? It wasn't well-financed. It didn't have the backing of political organizations of the day. It didn't have the backing of the religious power structures of the day. How did this thing ever get launched? Which makes it pretty amazing that this little gathering in Jerusalem, 30 years later, isn't just hearing about something that fizzled out. Do you know how many things fizzled out in that same 30-year time span? How many people claimed to be something significant? How many religious activities took place that people can barely even remember anymore? That's happened in our day. And what happened then too? But 30 years later, the world is different. I love the title of this book. Michael Green, an author and pastor in England, wrote a book, actually it's a great book if you want to study further the the book of Acts. It's called 30 Years That Changed the World. He says, three crucial decades in world history. That's all it took. In the years between 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion putative adherents. It has held an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root was in these three decades. This is a huge statement, isn't it? It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. Can you get the scope of that? A handful of little people have touched your life thousands of years later and thousands and thousands of miles away. This is an amazing story. Now, I love the title, 30 Years That Changed the World, but i got to take issue with it because 30 years in and of itself doesn't do anything. Right? Time just passes. Time didn't change the world. The ingredients that are in the beginning of the book of Acts changed the world. The person and work of Christ, you, and the power of the Holy Spirit changed the world. Now, you know, I love, you know, there's lots of folks who are motivational and and eager to motivate us, and they they use world changer language. You know, you want to be a world changer. You know, there's there's something in us that even though we might, you know, not use that exact language, there's something in us that says, yeah, yeah, I I want my life to count for something, right? I, 
I think everybody in here, young and old, young people especially, we, we want to be something in life. We want to do something with our lives. There is this thing inside of us that we know we're meant for something. Do you know that about your life? I mean, you may be frustrated as all get out trying to figure out what exactly am I meant for? That might be an intimidating thing. You may feel like you're failing at something. Listen, the only reason why failure bothers you is because it's, it's a delay in you becoming something. It's, 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 a, it's a hesitation on the way to what matters. Failure reminds you that I was supposed to be something in this life. And you know, we, we, we come into this world, right? We've got, we've got feet and we, we can walk and we stumble, but you know, walking isn't good enough, is it? We, we want to run. We want to we wanna do more. We want to go farther than just the bare basics of surviving. Right? We come, we can observe, we have eyes and a mind that can take in the world around us. But that's not enough, is it? You look at humanity, it's not enough. Man doesn't just want to take in. He doesn't just gather a lawn chair and stare out at creation and take it in. He, he wants to do something with creation, so he, he begins to imagine and think and dream and build and cities emerge and structures and ideas and philosophies take place. There's something in us that wants something more. Listen, that's, that's in this room with you this morning. You want something more. I, I couldn't even drive in this morning without encountering this. Right? I'm listening to a radio station. The radio station is talking about changing the world. It's a radio station, but it's changing the world. And I passed a billboard on the way in. If you want to make a difference, some, make some kind of a splash. It was a Coast Guard uh, billboard. If you want to make a difference, why does the Coast Guard stick that up on the side of the interstate? Because it's tapping into something that every one of us knows is true inside of us. We want to be part of something. Our lives are wired for that. We want to be part of something. We want to be something in life. So that's already in us. I love Paul Tripp wrote a book called A Quest for More that touches on a lot of this. He says, there is woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than our relatively meaningless day-by-day existence. Being a fan in the stands with 65,000 other fans at the Super Bowl, with everyone screaming at the top of their lungs as the kicker launches that last second field goal gives us a feeling of transcendence. You hear it in the voice of the fan who says, it's our year, our time has come. We're going to win this one. He sounds like he's a paid member of the team, yet he's not. The we language is transcendence. He's become part of something greater than his mundane work-a-day world. Now listen, we're Americans, we specialize in that. Unlike the rest of the world, we have the ability to incorporate people into something bigger than themselves. We specialize in it. There are community groups and there are clubs and there are sports and franchises. And, you know, 
you bump into people in your everyday world, and, and we get bored with everyday world. We're tired of doing everyday world. And that sense of transcendence can come when you got to work the other day and talked about what on earth are the saints doing, trading, and doing, right? All of a sudden, everybody gathers into it. I and mean, you can get an amen faster on that, and you can pull out the Bible and get one, right? I mean, did you hear that the saints, oh, jeez, passion. Why is that? I'm part of this, man. I'm part of this. Right, if, you're, if you're from New Orleans and you've been here all your life, right, you, you, you have this weird sense of owning the saints. Almost like, hey, you know, Sean Payton's just passing through, all right? <laughs> I mean, he is the head coach and laying his life down in some way to be a part of it. Hey, 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 I've been here all my life, okay, dude? You might want to run some of those trades by me next time. Uh, right, we own this thing like we're part of something big. Right? Well, when I, I pick up the book of Acts and I encounter people who were that way, they owned this thing. There was something in them that compelled them to be part of something that was big, unpredictable, dangerous, risky, a source of potential harm and loss and difficulty and struggle. Yet they participated, right? Right, we meet people. They had names, and they were, they were people like us. Don't make them like they fell out of heaven. They, they are the stuff of earth just like you and I are. Peter and James and John. Right, these, these guys were from Chalmette. They had white fishing boots on. <laughs> Do you remember who they were? <laughs> and that really is, I mean, people in the rest of the country can't really understand the apostles the way we can. They were Shalmatians. They, their life, they had grown up living in a community that this is what we do, right? You know, where does your life go? Well, it goes to the end of the street where there's a boat launch. I mean, this is my life right here in this community, and this is how we live. And along comes this Jesus, and along comes this message, and it turns their world upside down. All of a sudden, what they never thought they'd be doing, right? These, you know, can you imagine? I mean, right now, it would terrify you if I just decided randomly, I'm going to come into the audience, I'm going to pull one of you guys up here, and you're going to share some thoughts about your life, right? I mean, you could hit the door faster than I could get to you, right? Public speaking. All right, so can you imagine you're a fisherman who's lived his whole life, you and one other guy on a boat. That's it. That's your public domain right there. You and a guy shooting the breeze, drinking cheap beer, fishing all day long. And you meet this Jesus, and you're going to speak to thousands on the day of Pentecost. Can you imagine? This is a different world. We meet guys like Philip and Stephen and Barnabas and Silas. Meet a little group of women that I really enumerated more in, in Luke's first volume. Mary and Joanna, Lydia. And then we meet this one guy named Saul of Tarsus who becomes the Apostle Paul, who we, we, we follow him through the rest of the book of Acts. Now, here, here is the reality. We met these people who had met Christ, who had been compelled by him to turn their world upside down and to live for something so much bigger than what they had ever imagined and in such a different category than they had ever imagined in their lives. And here's what's true for us. The same mission that the Spirit set in motion in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit came is still alive and continues 
today. And the same questions and considerations faced by a group of 120 that were huddled together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 are still the same questions that are faced by this group huddled right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. It has everything to do with whether you and I are going to be a part of what God is doing on this earth. That's the question that was before them. Listen, they, you know, there was no gun to anybody's head. Anybody can go home at any point in Acts chapter 1. You don't, you don't have to have a future like Stephen's where you're going to volunteer to serve one day in the church and God's going to begin to use your gifts and your influence and you're going to be put in a place where you can proclaim the gospel publicly and you're going to be stoned to death and your blood's going to be on the ground. Nobody has to do that. You have the opportunity to serve the purpose of God, but you're not forced to. They made a decision about that. And, and, and this is that you ingredient, right? There's the person and work of Christ, and there's the coming power of the Holy Spirit, and in between that sandwiched in it is you. It's these people in the book of Acts, the names I just mentioned that you and I are still talking about. When I say Stephen and Philip, You know these people. They lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, and you know them. That's amazing, isn't it? They had no idea what they were getting into, but they were about to change the world and change our lives. But this is what God does. In every generation, God shows up with an agenda, and then there's that you ingredient, Will you be a part of what God's doing, right? Look at these verses. This is just a quick taste test through Scripture. Acts 13 makes us aware of a man named David. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. And this this passage is about explaining who the Messiah is in light of who people thought David was. But I just love that little phrase there. It's a great descriptive phrase. God, let this be the bumper sticker on my casket. When it gets shoved and the last thing you see is that casket going into its grave. I hope Keith Collins' bumper sticker says this. He served the purpose of God in his own generation. Remember there was a day when Queen Esther the day of bondage and affliction and threats of menacing kings and the exile of God's people. And Mordecai comes to Esther and says, who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther had a unique role to play in her day in the purpose of God. David had a unique role to play in God's activity in his lifetime. The Apostle Paul had a unique role to play. This is how he described it at the close of these 30 years in 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, from generation to generation, what Jesus said 
about you wait to be clothed with power from on high. That you ingredient is in every generation that God has done something. There is a you ingredient in it. And we get into studying the book of Exodus. You're going to see significant individuals that God taps and who respond. And off goes the purpose of God into that generation. So there is a you ingredient in what God does. There is a you ingredient today in what God is doing on planet Earth. We are here to proclaim a message that we did not create, we did not add to, we did not accomplish. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a you ingredient. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, y'all don't need to wait in Jerusalem. We got this. I've done what I needed to do and now the Holy Spirit will do what he needs to do. You guys just read about it in the papers. Y'all go home, do whatever. No, 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 you wait in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, you go hide in Jerusalem. That's what they were doing. That 120 was hiding in Jerusalem, wondering what on earth is this, what, what's going to happen? But by faith, they were there. Now, here, here's our questions today. What am I doing to serve the purpose of God in my generation? I don't want anybody to escape that before I read these next ones. I don't want anybody in this room. Are you asking yourself that question? Elbow the person next to you. Go ahead. You can do it. This is your moment. Elbow them harder if you've really been wanting to for a long time. Now stop elbowing them and ask yourself this question. Am I serving the purpose of God in my generation? Am I doing that? In what way am I being, as Paul said, poured out as an offering for the purpose of God. Listen, listen, being poured out doesn't sound fun. Right, what happens when you are poured out more and more and more and more and more? What are you going to feel like at the end? Thank you. Well, this is easy, isn't it? Right. How many of us want to just feel like, oh, man, I'm just, I'm whipped, spent, spent I'm poured out. Uh, whether I want to or not, for the purpose of God, here I am. Where am I in this, this race that matters? Paul says, I have run the race. All right, where, where are you right now? You're, you're in a race. And I'm not talking about the rat race, right, where we just get up in the morning and life spins and we just get involved in way too much stuff or who knows whether it matters or not. That sense of purpose that defines and describes my life, that I get up, and, and here I am, I'm 51 years old. Can I look back on something and say, look, look where I've come from. Look what's been accomplished. Look, look at how I answered and, and I was supposed to be there. He was there, yes, and there's set before me a race. Does your, does your life feel like it's a race? It's got a, finish, a starting line and a finish line to it. It's got a course. Right? Every person here. Listen, if I really challenged you on this, I, I think some of us would, would be feeling like, I, I don't know that I'm running a race as much as I'm just meandering through the countryside. And I've read enough of the Bible to know that at, at some point Jesus comes back and picks us up. Until then, I'm just kind of surviving and meandering. And that's not what Paul sounds like. That's not the Christian life. What a boring, miserable thing. Listen, there is, is it any wonder why some of us are shopping for adventure in every category we can find? Because we've got nothing going on in this category. 
There's no adventure of following God. There's no risk being taken. I would not know what it was like to be one of those 120 people who turned their lives upside down and were going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth at all kinds of costs, with all kinds of dangers. So I've got to find adventure inside my phone. I've got to find adventure in whatever sporting event is out there. I'm more sold out for the results of the Pelican season than I am for the gospel in the city of New Orleans. Some of us got season tickets to somewhere else besides here. This is getting leftovers because this is not adventurous to us. Listen, I don't know what it was that some of us signed on for as Christians, but we signed on for this boring, going nowhere thing. We're just, well, what is the Christian life? Well, it's just meandering until Jesus comes back to get us. Well, not for Paul. It was a race to run, right? In our 30-year window, and some of us have less than that. Some of us got saved later in life. Some of us have a little bit longer than that. We got saved earlier. In our 30-year window of life, how have we contributed to changing the world? You feel like you're doing something that's changing the world? Do you, think that, do, you, do you feel like there's parts of the world right now that you participated in something that touched that part of the world that made a difference? It's a shame. It's an opportunity for us here. We should feel that way. We should not be so localized that the things that I'm most in touch with kind of begin and end at the edges of my property line. You're called to be a world changer. And I don't mean that in some hyped sense of having a big, oh, I'm making a kind. The gospel changes the world and your participation in it, you, that ingredient, changes the world. When I use world changer language, can I be kind of careful here? And I'm, I'm not trying to step on social justice or caring for human beings in their hour of need that that's appropriate but, you know, you and I have just read through the book of Acts, so we have got a history lesson on what did it look like to fulfill the Great Commission? What were the priorities that were here? Now, now think for a second with me what didn't get discussed, what didn't get highlighted, what problems didn't get solved, featured, or even talked about, and it'll blow your mind. Right, when I see commercials for world-changing activity, it's, it's about feeding, it's about solving world hunger. It's about clean drinking water for people who don't have clean drinking water. It's about human trafficking today. And listen, can I tell you, are those good things for people to be involved with? Absolutely they are good things. But this is a curiosity factor. When we get 30 years later to the end of the book of Acts, they have not even put a dent or even discussed except for an offering that was taken for the needs of the saints of the poor, probably to help them have food. They weren't rallying a cause to solve world hunger. They weren't rallying a cause to create fresh drinking water. And in a culture unlike any culture that we have been exposed to, in a culture where nearly 50% of the people were slaves. Now, for different reasons than colonial slavery, but 50% of the culture almost were slaves. And we get 30 years later, and there's no organized effort to put an end to slavery. All right, Keith, does that mean you're for slavery and you don't care if people eat and you want to go ahead and let them have bad drinking water? No. 
there's this thing called the love of God that compels us into those categories. But remember our ingredients, the person and work of Christ, you, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you can do clean drinking water and feed the world without the person and work of Christ. And you can solve slavery and human trafficking without the person and work of Christ. Lots of people are doing it today. And they're making a meaningful contribution on these categories, and we thank God for that. But the mission of the church is the person and work of Christ. It is the proclamation of the gospel. Romans chapter 15, Paul makes that clear. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Can you hold on to that? That's an awkward phrase, isn't it? The apostle, great apostle Paul stands up to the Romans and says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Here's what he accomplished, right? Here's the mission to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, right? His preaching and his life. By the power of signs and wonders, thank God for the empowerment of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, probably some 1,200 miles into Greece, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is, Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. What what was the need in this audience here? Seeing, understanding, and becoming obedient, right? The obedience of the Gentiles, and Paul's goal and ambition was that they would see, and that they would understand, and that they would become obedient. This is the mission of the Christian. That into the world, God has commanded us to take this message. That people would see the person and work of Christ. They would understand the person and work of Christ. And they would become obedient to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of you and me. Remember, it's, it's not the mission of those people somewhere, right? Remember that group over there? There's, there's, aren't there some people somewhere taking care of this? Well, there's those people. There's even those people here, right? And there's, there are some people here. They're mystery people. They're kind of like those flight marshals on the airplane. You never can know who they are, but you know they're there. There are some Christians here that are taking care of this. Yeah. They're witnessing, and they're discipling, and they're getting with people, and they're caring about their souls, and they're explaining the gospel to them, and they're opening scriptures up to them, and they're financing this, and they're giving abundantly. There are some people here like that somewhere, I'm sure. And there's some churches that are doing this somewhere. Okay, the you ingredient is every person who has been saved by the grace of God is the you ingredient in this equation. That's us. And what's interesting here is Paul has a very awkward little phrase here in verse 17. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He's got a category here that's a mouthful, right? I mean, we, we, don't, we like to avoid anything. It sounds like we should be proud of anything. All right, I get that. Paul offers a little qualifier here. Don't let the qualifier erase the statement from the Bible, right? What's the qualifier here? What Christ has accomplished through me. 
Oh, well, that erases that previous statement right there, Keith. See, it's, it's not anything Paul did. It's what Christ did. It's just what Christ did. And we have this cosmic thing. This is not helpful for us because this is what makes us begin to license our irresponsibility. Because it's not about me anyway, right? Keith, haven't you read the Bible? It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's, it's not me, it's Christ. It's not what I did, it's what Christ has done. It's not me, it's not me, it's not me. Right? I heard somebody one time tell a story. This guy was, I think he was playing drums or something in a worship team, and somebody came up to him afterwards and said, man, I just so appreciated you playing today. just thought it was really, really great. And the, the guy in all this strange humility kind of says, oh, no, 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 brother. I, I, I wasn't me, it was Christ. And a Here's the interesting, appropriate response. No, 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 brother, it was you, because if it had been Christ, it would have been a whole lot better. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, it was good, but it wasn't that good. (laughs) You know, but there's this strange, cosmic Christ thing that it's not me, it's Christ, it's not me, it's Christ. All right, can can you read this Bible passage with me? Paul says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And then in the next sentence, what Christ has accomplished through me. Okay, we need both here. There is this accomplishment that Christ is the only one who can accomplish these eternal redemptive acts where eyes get opened and understanding is given and miracles take place and people put their faith in God. Okay, you and I can't pull that off. But we're an ingredient, and we do something. And sometimes we do a decent job, and sometimes we don't do a good job. But Paul was able, the same guy who says, hey, I've I've run the race, I've finished the course. And he's looking back at his life, he's surveying something. He didn't just say, hey, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just wandering around, and poof, Christ was doing stuff. I was just meandering. No, no, I ran the race. I went from here to there spent time there, and I lived this way there, and, I, and then I pursued these people, and I got trained and helped, and then I went over here to this, and I went to this person, and I cared for these individuals, and then I almost got killed over here and killed over there again. If you hear Paul tell his story, Paul doesn't lose sight of the fact that he did things in his life, and here he revisits them and says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, we are so allergic to the word works. It's almost like we can't even read that sentence, right? This is, like, this is as close as Paul comes to heresy, isn't it? Okay. Work and your awareness or your investment in or, or your value of works only becomes a problem when you try and use it in a justifying manner. All over the place, the Bible calls us to obedience. It calls us to lay our lives down, to live a certain way. At the end of our life, may we get to the place where we look back and the, and the Lord can say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we stand there and we, and we say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was Christ. Well, I wasn't talking to you anyway. I was talking to Christ, but thanks. I mean, that's not the exchange in heaven. There's a real exchange where you and I ran a course and we made decisions and the you ingredients in what God was doing in this generation is going to be described by where you put your feet. I stepped right here, and then I stepped right here, and then I reached in my wallet, and I knelt down and I prayed, and I told that person about Christ, and I traveled to this place, and I encouraged these people, and I participated in a church, and I was part of a bigger movement. There's going to be something you did in the equation of what God did 
in your generation. That's true of David. It was true of Esther. It was true of Paul. And it's true of us. Acts has introduced us to some really incredible individuals who contributed the you contribution. It was varied. It was different. When we met them along the way here, right? right? I think I highlighted these guys just real quickly in your outline there. These are the you ingredients. There was the 120 in the upper room that launched a rocket and held on for dear life. Can you imagine had no idea what this thing was going to turn into when they started out. But by faith, they were so compelled with who they'd encountered in Christ, who he was, so possessed who they were ever going to be in their lives, that they lived lives. All right, there's 120 of them gathered in a little upper room in a city that that probably had hundreds of thousands of people teeming in it, more than that probably, for the festivals of the Jews at that time. And yet they were going to have a presence, 120 in the midst of hundreds of thousands, and yet Jerusalem was going to be abuzz with what God was doing through those ingredients right there. And then out from Jerusalem would come this swell of activity that would go into the next 30 years and would take it 2,000 miles away. And whether you believed it or not, you were talking about it. It was the buzz. And obviously it was quite something because you and I are affected by it even here today. The volunteers of Acts chapter 6 who began by serving widows in Jerusalem Remember that day? The church was getting unorganized. It was getting big. It was getting hard to manage. That sound familiar? Lots and lots of people are coming in. New needs are arriving. Church leaders stand up and say, hey, uh, you know, we're needing to do this, and we're finding ourselves doing this instead. Can, can we have some guys, you know, who are full of the Spirit, loving God's purpose, men of faith, who can step into this need and can just serve right here? Can we, can we do that? And this group of Men are selected who begin to serve in this capacity. And out of that group, out of that simple step of serving God in their generation, men like Stephen and Philip. Stephen, who in an interesting way, this is an interesting role to play. And it's not one that I don't think Stephen signed on for. And I don't think God lets us know these things because none of us would sign on for it. Stephen, your blood is going to be the epicenter for launching the church out of Jerusalem. What we're doing in Jerusalem, what this, God's got a purpose for Jerusalem. The church is moving. People are being added. It's an amazing setting. And God comes along and says, Stephen, it's going to be your blood and your life that gets laid down so that my church will launch from Jerusalem and not just get stuck right here. Philip, I know you just volunteered to go help out with some meals being served to some of the widows in our church but I'm going to have you preaching all over the region. You're going to be here and here, and you're going to be Ethiopian eunuchs. You're going to be all over the place. Remember Philip in the book of Acts? Philip was just a man who was seeking to serve the purpose of God in his generation. He just took one step that led to another that led to another. But he took a step. The group of women that were gathered, some of these I have no doubt were 
the group of women in the book of Luke that were bankrolling the ministry of the apostles. Right? This is in Luke chapter 8, if you want to go look it up, verse 1. Soon after, he began going around from one city, speaking of Jesus, and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness as many. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna. And many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. This is a list of people and then a whole gathering of those that we never even get to know their names who served the purpose of God in their generation. How did they serve it? By handing over funds to the apostles for the purpose of ministry. And isn't this interesting? All right, this is kind of like, is this shocking here? This is not post-Jesus. This is while Jesus was here. Jesus, you're kidding me. You're the son of God. You, you need some money from some women? Are you serious? Turn the rocks into cash. Come on. But isn't it interesting that God chooses not to do that? He could do that, right? They, had, they were finding money inside of fish's mouths, right? Remember this? Jesus could do funny stuff with money. But isn't it interesting that he chooses not to this guy, hey, guys, let's go fishing. We need some money. He chooses for some, some women. Now, if these women are following these guys around, there's a lot of implications here. Uh, more than likely, they're widows. Right? So they've, they've got their own financial issues, for goodness sake. And yet they're contributing into the mission out of their lives to serve the purpose of God in their generation, however God enables you to serve. There were poor Christians in Macedonia who gave by faith beyond their means to further the mission. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I don't know, that's a strange sentence, isn't it? Basically, it's, it's saying that a bunch of poor people were just overwhelmed to want to give in support. Their great poverty overflowed into liberality. They gave even though they couldn't afford to give. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Don't you love that? Begging. These are people who had needs. These are people who can't easily get to the end of the month. These are people with their own list of fears and insecurities about their needs in their life. And they are begging and urging us to participate in the mission. We want to participate, Paul, in the mission. And they did. Listen, thank God for partnerships in the mission. 
these, these churches in Macedonia, they were partnering with ministry that was taking place in other parts of the world that they may never see themselves, but they believed in the gospel going forward. They believed in the mission. Look at this one more passage here. The Apostle Paul, speaking of one of the churches that was in Macedonia, addressed this to the Philippians. It's a verse that we, we usually know the tail end of it, but we don't know the whole story, sadly. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul said, and you Philippians, right? These are, this is one of those churches in Macedonia. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you, right? Another you ingredient. Do you see it? Do you see this? This church is a you ingredient. It's, we, we've got the person and work of Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have this you ingredient called this church in Philippi. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, I know all of us who are, are fully informed about our own needs love the back end of that passage. My God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. I love that passage. I believe I'm supposed to quote that passage. I'm supposed to cling to that passage in the face of my own needs. But the context for that passage is a church participating in the mission of God. Now, I don't, I don't quite get how churches and individuals can stop participating in the mission of God and yet want to claim and quote that verse. It's, it's an injustice to the Bible. The Bible's not written that way. It's not a magic eight ball. I don't get to shake it and ignore all that's in Philippians and who those people were and how they responded to the mission of God and the belief that they had toward an economy where God's kingdom would come all over the earth I just ignore all that and I say, but, oh, there's my magic gate ball. God will supply all my needs according to, whoo, I'm just glad God's looking out for my needs, man. That's not what that verse is about, is it? Come on. That's not what that verse is about. And sadly, you know, I quoted this the other night in our, our business meeting. The statistics on Christians in the United States is that they give 2.38% of their income to the work of God. 2.38%. That, that's the people who didn't read the first part of this verse. I'm very concerned that God would meet my needs and God would supply into my world. You know, I got a lot going on and I'm so glad God is joining me in my mission. That's not like the Bible. God's called me to join him in his mission for the sake of his glory. And 2.38% just isn't going to cut it. And it shows forth a value system that's upside down in our lives. 30 years have passed through these moments. And the world is a different place. And there's a you ingredient in this. And it 
features what Paul said here. It features a partnership in the mission, a partnership in the mission. All right, let me go back to our question here about how you and I are participating in the purpose of God in our generation. The purpose of God goes forward in our generation. We we are not exactly the same moment when we were in exactly the same condition as that huddled group of 120 with the world laying before them and the agenda of God in their hearts. We are those people. Now, we're not in Jerusalem in some dusty town in an upper room. We're in a very nice air-conditioned building. But we are those people. And we have to answer the same questions they had to answer. Are you, are you willing to step off into this mission? Are you willing to let the mission and the purpose of God turn your life upside down and for you to be launched into it in a significant way? I think it's a great question on a bunch of fronts for us. But this morning I want to bring it back to our partnership with the Ministry of Sovereign Grace and other churches that we are together seeking to fulfill this great commission. Same mission from Acts chapter 1 is in our lives today, that we are partnering with other churches for this purpose. Let me me just uh, put a few lines in there about the fruit of this partnership. I just want to highlight for a moment because I want to instill some value in us for this mission that we are partnering with. First, Through the ministry of sovereign grace, churches have been planted, adopted, and strengthened. Through the ministry of sovereign grace, churches have been planted, adopted, and strengthened. Now, don't let anybody recline into old American thinking here. It's like, well, what's the big deal? Churches in America, what's the big deal? Let me tell you, let me warn you, and I've been saying this for a while, In your lifetime, you're going to live to see a different Christianity in this country. You're going to see something that doesn't look anything like what your fathers and your grandfathers experienced, and it's going to be a fading memory in your own life as you remember back of what it used to be like for churches in this country. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, who write a book from the perspective of guys in England, this book's called Everyday Church, England is already living this as a reality for them. What generated the Charles Spurgeons and the Charles Wesleys is a bygone era. You don't hear the Charles Spurgeons coming out of England. John Wesley's and the move of God taking place. This is what they say. The Easter 2009 edition of Newsweek magazine created a stir with the words, the decline and fall of Christian America emblazoned across its cover. The cover article quotes Al Mohler saying, clearly there is a new narrative, a post-Christian narrative that is animating large portions of this society. The number of adults in the United States who do not attend church has nearly doubled since 1991. Over 3,500 United States churches close their doors every year. I'm going to show you another stat that doubles that one. The attendance of more than 80% of those remaining has plateaued or is declining. We are seeing the marginalization of the institutional church. What does that mean for us? It means participating in church planting and church support and strengthening churches is not some automatic button anymore. Maybe it never has been, but it sure felt that way, right? Just let churches get started, turn turn their back. Hey, you guys just go ahead. It'll, It'll all work out. Just go do your thing. Like an automatic button. We don't live in an automatic environment anymore in this country. This country is going to eat churches every chance it gets. And therefore, the need for meaningful support 
of churches. Jeff McDonald, the Winston-Salem Journal, said, blooming megachurches might grab headlines, but the bigger story of American congregations is one of accelerating decline, according to David Olson, director of American Church Research. Based on data collected from more than 200,000 churches, he projects that by 2050, only 10% of Americans will be in church on any given Sunday. This is a post-Christian society. That, that, that's why, this is, this is why this is influential. When the world loses interest in the church, sadly, the church loses interest in the church as well because we are part of this world. Don't ever forget that. This is humbling, right? This is humble reality for all of us. You and I are more like the lost person in many ways who crosses the street today than we are by the risen Savior. My life looks more like his sometimes, oftentimes, and it does look like the glorified Christ. That's why churches are declining in so many numbers. That's why 2.38%, the worst giving record since the Great Depression in this country, describes giving in this country. Because this world doesn't want or need the church, but it wants and needs a lot of things. And you and I are joining them in our wanting and needing them as well. And so who's got any cash left over for the mission? Not the church. Second fruit of partnership has been doctrinal purity, has been protected, and important emphasis has been maintained. Doctrinal purity matters. What the church believes from generation to generation matters. Church partnership helps local churches and local pastors to maintain doctrinal purity. Biblical emphasis, as you heard in some of the reports from the different pastors. Gospel-centeredness, that we're not chasing off the latest ideas that are popular in the world and bringing them into the church, but that we are God-centered, God's agenda, his gospel being the center of all that we do. Okay, that's a benefit. That, that has been a benefit to us as a local church and to all the pastors here as a result of Sovereign Grace's partnership with us. Third, existing leaders are equipped and strengthened and supported through our partnership with Sovereign Grace. Existing leaders, pastors, and those who lead churches go through everything from pastors' colleges to conferences to relational contexts where we are strengthening and helping one another. Now, can I just instill a value? I think one of the things that Sovereign Grace has done the best is in this category, is create context for men who lead to encourage and support one another and walk together and be sharpened and strengthened and to, and to be helped to not quit along the way. You look at statistics, it's, it's, it's very helpful to see how healthy God has preserved relationships and support of one another. Let's not take this for granted. Let me just show you the reality of what, this is what pastors and churches face in the world that you may not be aware of. 50% of the ministers starting out will not last five years. Only one out of every 10 ministers will actually retire as a minister in some form. The other nine are going to go do something else. 4,000 new churches begin each year and 7,000 churches close. This is from the Schaefer Institute, so I'm not sure whose stats are off on that one. But if they're anywhere in between those two numbers, that's a lot of churches closing every year. 
Over 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month last year. Tom Rayner, who is a research specialist for Lifeway Publishing and the Baptist churches, says, what is, the un- is unique to this vocation that causes such a dramatic dropout rate? May I suggest seven reasons from the hundreds of cases I've known through the years? One, for pastors, this, this, the 24-7 mentality. Many pastors can't, quote, turn off work in their mind. Even on their days off, they're waiting for that next telephone call or next crisis. Thus, they, they never relax. Um, this is... Pastoring, pastoring is a weird vocation. It, it, I don't know if it's for weird people, but it's a weird vocation. <laughs> I mean, when I look at, you know, now I have the opportunity to serve the other pastors in our region and relate to them and look at roles and functions. I mean, you ball together a bunch of ingredients. All right, a pastor's got to have a certain kind of people skills. This can't be a doorknob. He's got to have some ability to have knowledge, and he's got to be able to debate that knowledge. He just can't have ideas tucked away in the back of his head that if you give me three days, I can come up with something to defend what I'm... You've got to be able to debate the knowledge that you have. He's got to be part administrator because he's got to administrate the stuff that goes on in his church. He's got to be able to plan it out and make it not collide with itself and have support structures that are in it. He's got to be part business manager because into this church is going to come hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars, and facilities and insurance and building things, right? This is, this is all part of being a church. He's got to have communication abilities, so the ability to take whatever's inside of him and not confuse people with it by the way it comes out, right? A lot of people are that way. Pastor can't be that way. He's got to be able to take stuff on the inside and make it clear to those who are around him. He's part crisis intervention because, you know, these are people's lives. Stuff is going to happen. So uh, one day you are in a home where domestic violence is taking place and, and it's confusing and it's challenging and who knows how to fix this thing that's going on right here. And the next day you're in a hospital with a young couple whose child has died and, and their hearts are broken and, and, and there's no end in sight for them to get over the grief. And then you're sitting in therapy sessions, counseling hour after hour with people whose lives have been twisted together and they're harming everybody around them and you're trying to meet with all of them as well. This is a weird job. And, and it is hard to turn it off. My wife and I were, were out of town. It was, it was intended just to be time for her and I to be together for a few days. And, uh, you know, I have this, I have this device in my pocket it lets me know what's happening in the rest of the universe. And most of that stuff, I don't, you know, I don't do social media. I don't have an account for it, and I don't pay attention. But, you know, when I get emails and contact from people in the church who matter to me, it doesn't matter that I'm on vacation. I know that that family is hurting right now. I can't turn that off. So it means that we're having lunch, and I'm reading an email, and we go from, isn't it great, honey, to, oh, my gosh. Right, well, you know, that's, that's a problem. You, you, you can't live your life that way over and over and over again. You begin to smear stuff into every category of your life that becomes difficult and discouraging to manage. And that's what he's talking about, conflict. If church conflict and criticisms are ongoing, pastors wear down, they eventually burn out. And, well, hey, you know what? You can't put this many people in proximity to each other and not have conflict. And unfortunately, you know, I'm 20-something years of doing this now. Uh, The guy who tries to step in and fix the problem 
he has this unique benefit that's about to happen to him. He started off in a neutral role. This person hates this person. He tried to care about this person and tried to care about this person and tried to bring them together. At the end, these two might or might not work it out, but they're both going to hate him. It's just a weird thing that happens. (laughs) Conflict. Expectations. No pastor can meet all the expectations of church members, but many try and they burn out as a result. Unwillingness to let go. They're just trying to do too much. No friends. Many pastors fail to develop meaningful friendships, people with whom they can let their hair down. Without such outlets, burnout is more likely. This is part of the weirdness of pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry, especially in a church that grows, uh, puts you in relationship with hundreds of people. So you, are, you have a thin relationship with hundreds of people and next to no relationship that's deep with anybody. Because you don't have time for the depth because you're too busy running from this event and that event and this need and that need and, and celebration events, everything from weddings and babies being born to funerals and people in hospitals and counseling needs in crisis. It, it, it does make pastors friend poor, which weighs on their lives. Uh, not suited for some tasks. Pastors often are trying to do things they just don't have the gifts for. No life outside the church. I'm amazed at the number of pastors who have no meaningful hobbies or recreational activities outside the church. I'm less amazed when these pastors burn out and drop out. Now, why do I highlight that? I highlight it for two reasons. One, for the church to understand, you, know, you, you have pastors in your midst. These are problems for every pastor. There's no such thing as being a pastor that one of these things, several of them aren't touching your life. But we are partnered with other churches who all have pastors and Part of the role that we have benefited from, I'm grateful for the role of guys who have been regional leaders for us, who have stepped into our lives, aware of these things, to try and help us manage them as pastors so that we don't burn out and quit. Uh, There are the churches in our region that I have some responsibility to try and do that for them to try and get into the messes and the confusion and the difficulties and conflicts and seasons of their churches and try and support them. That's not just something I'm doing. You partner with that. You are an ingredient in strengthening pastors who at some point are going to want to quit. And I know it feels like sometimes, well, you know, you, you preach the word, you stand up, pastors, it, just, it, just, it's, it all works for you, right? Wrong. I live in the same fallen world that you live in. I step in the same hornet's nest that you. I get bit by things. I get discouraged. It is not unusual for a pastor to want to quit doing this. But we don't want that to happen. We want men who are called by God to run the course all the way to the end. But that doesn't just happen by churches like ours and and leaders like me and others just turning our back and ignoring these pastors and automatic piloting and you'll just make it to the end. No, it takes partnership for this to happen. And I thank God that sovereign grace has created partnership in these categories that have made a difference and continue to make a difference. This is what I'm asking us to be partnered with. Sovereign Grace has produced music and books that have blessed the body of Christ. Sovereign Grace is making a contribution in evangelism that's touching people in places that you and I, we don't necessarily get the report of how many people got saved in some setting because a church got established there, and they're doing just like what we're doing. Their lives are, are spilling out into the community, and they're bringing people to know Christ and discipling them. And that's happening because of partnerships 
Did you guys know we started doing Alpha after going to a conference, and I heard about a church in the Northeast who was doing this thing called Alpha, and they described it a little bit. thought, wow, that, that sounds like something we could do. That sounds pretty interesting. And so it was the partnership with Sovereign Grace that introduced me to something called Alpha that God has used incredibly in our lives here. And some of us are in this room because we got saved through that ministry. And that came from partnership and sharing. So here's how I want us to conclude today. I want us to answer the question in real ways of what am I doing to serve the purpose of God in my generation? I want every one of us to be wrestling with that question. What am I doing? I may not be doing what somebody else is doing. I may not be called to do it the way they do it, but I'm called to do something in this category. And so no matter who you are here, there, there is a, there's a functional responsibility that we have in our partnerships. There is a financial responsibility that we have in our partnership. So one of the quickest ways, and I want to jumpstart us in this category. This is, not the, this is not the end of the street for us, but I want to jumpstart us. I want to ask every person to be willing to make a mistake in this direction in just a moment. Because right? I know we, we always want to be very careful about following the will of God. We want to pray thoroughly. And, I, and I'm sure you've been doing that in every category that's significant in your life, praying thoroughly and being careful about following God. So if I were to just throw out at you today and say, hey, how about, how about giving some money right now to Sovereign Grace? You know, maybe you say, well, I, I, Keith, I'd have to pray about that. And uh, how about just being willing to make a mistake? How about being able to revisit this about two weeks from now and go, you know, shouldn't have given that. And see if God communicates that to you rather than say, well, you know, let me, let me just pause and wait and pray and fast and, you know, wait for an angel. <laughs> and then I'll see, you know. All right, how, you know, how many of you know that that could lead you to a mistake? Just delay, uh, I just made a mistake, and I didn't give. I made a mistake. Okay, how about making the other mistake this morning? How about give and let that be the mistake? I'm going to give, and I'm going to find out later, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> All right, well, okay. But I, I think it's a step in a direction that's meaningful. So- Sovereign grace needs churches like ours to partner with a variety of needs that are in the ministry to take place. You heard a good description of what many churches are doing. There are many churches who have need of help and support and input. Care that comes from a human being, but support financially that comes to them in seasons of difficulty and financial troubles. Uh, I, you know, I don't have a formula in my head, so I'm not going to say, you know, if, if every person here this morning gave $100, you know, it, it, it would be a huge impact. And, and, and most of us here, by the way, we can afford to make a $100 mistake. Almost everybody in this room, even, even teenagers in here, can afford to make a $100 mistake. Right? So I, I'm not trying to tell you exactly how much they give, but I am trying to tell you there's a you ingredient in this. There's a you ingredient in the mission of God taking place. We are in it. And in this generation, can we serve the purpose of God together in this generation? Right, so I'm going to have the, the ushers come forward and, um, maybe you're one of those rare people who actually still carries a checkbook with you. You can write a check this morning. Uh, there's a couple of ways that you can give. You can always give online toward us. Uh, here's, here's what you can do. 
And you guys all have got a handout today, side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's a great little brochure. It'll give you a picture of what's going on in Sovereign Grace in different parts of the country and around the world. Uh, it also will give you some kind of financial insights into what exactly it takes for Sovereign Grace Ministries to, to function. Inside of that is this ancient document that's called mail. Um, so if you'd like to step back in time and fill this out, it gives you an opportunity to, to decide whether you want to give monthly, whether you want to give a one-time gift, uh, put your name and some contact information. You can use a credit card on here if you'd like to do that as a means of giving. You can fold that up and you can stick it inside this envelope and just mail it. Now, there's a couple ways you can do this. This will send you your money straight to Sovereign Grace, which is fine, and it'll stay in touch with you and, and update you from time to time, et cetera. Or I know many of you guys just are used to just giving to us and, and we pass it along to various ministries that we support. So if you do that in this offering, whatever you give to us in this offering, would you please designate that for Sovereign Grace? And we're going to send whatever you give to us, whether you use this or not. We're going to send what you give to us right now to Sovereign Grace. If, if you're saying, hey, I need to take care of this, uh, but I, I don't have the means to do that right now, well then, again, you can go online. You can go to Lakeview Christian Center. You can select a designation towards Sovereign Grace, and you can give something there, and we will pass that on to Sovereign Grace Ministries. Let me close with this Bible verse, and then we're going to take that offering. Apostle John wrote, and he said, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to you, to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Lord, this morning as we open our hearts and we give, Lord, it that is our desire. We want to be fellow workers for the truth. We want to serve the purpose of God in our generation. God, may, that, may this morning to be a stepping stone in that direction. May, may this be moments for Phillips and Stevens who just step forward and take a small step and say, you know, I can do something financially. I'm not sure what else I can do, but I can do something financially. Or would you allow us to at least serve your purpose in that category and then lead us into all that you have? God, we want to be the people who serve your purpose in our generation. So Lord, lead us this morning. Let your kingdom come, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Eric's going to lead us in one closing song as you give. Your glorious cause, O oh God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your cross has saved us so we pray your kingdom come 
Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. So that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere on earth till your song. to speak perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak Lord use us as you want whatever the test by grace we'll preach your gospel till our dying prayer, God. Lord, would you let your kingdom come through us, Lord. Activate us in your mission, we pray. In your name, amen.